0: 2020 was the worst year on record for wildfires in the state of California as more than four million acres were burned. Words like apocalyptic were used to describe the aftermath. The loss of lives and property are devastating, but are we making the problem worse with misconceptions about the role wildfires play in the forest ecosystem? Fire ecologist Dr. Chad Hansen joins us today to talk about some of the reasons that wildfires have increased over the past decades and how our actions have helped to fuel this increase. Chad, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. My pleasure. So you know, I often ask guests how'd you become a weather geek, but how'd you come f- become a fire ecologist geek, so to speak? That's always the question <laughs> I like to start out with.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I, uh, I, I came into this uh, work in, in kind of a circuitous path. I um, I hiked the uh, Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico to Canada with my my older brother um, back in 1989, uh, actually, and uh, you know we saw all the. Um, the devastation from logging and clear-cutting on, on public lands, you know, in Northern California, all the way through Oregon and, and Washington. And so yeah, I became concerned about the issue. I started getting involved. And the more I looked into it, and the more I involved I got, the more I realized that all of the questions about forests and forest management, and particularly wildfire you know, surrounded and, and basically involved science. And so I, I got more and more involved in in science. And eventually I went back to graduate school. I got my PhD in ecology and I started researching this issue and publishing studies on it. And what I realized is that everything was really revolving around wildland fire and forests. And, and I also realized that in the science, it was increasingly clear that wildland fires are driven mostly by weather and climate. Yeah, it's,
0: it's really I mean, I've, I've collaborated with some colleagues here at the U.S. Forest Service at the University of Georgia and have learned um, more than I thought I would learn about uh, the sort of role of weather and climate and, and fire and wild and fire activity, particularly here in southern Appalachia. Let me give you a little bit of, of, of Chad's background. Uh, he has a bachelor of science degree from the University of California, at Los Angeles, better known as UCLA uh, and a jurist jurist. Is that right? Uh, J.D.
1: Yeah, uh, from, a law degree from University of Oregon. University of Oregon in 1995
0: and then a Ph.D. in ecology uh, from the University of Cal at Davis in 2007. Uh, He first became involved in the National Forest Protection after hiking the twenty seven hundred mile length of the Pacific Crest Trail, as you just heard him mention, which goes from Mexico to Canada. And he co-founded the John Muir Project in 1996, which I'm curious, what what is that project and why did you find found that?
1: Well, a John Muir Project is a small uh, a nonprofit um, forest conservation research organization. And uh, so I, I founded the John Muir Project, um, you know, some years after uh, my brother and I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, just as a as an outgrowth of my interest in forest conservation and my growing interest in the science uh, behind it. And then, um you know, and that and that, of course, is is you know evolved over the years. And now, you know, I've got uh, the, my recent book uh, uh, called "Smoke Screen: uh, Debunking Wildfire Myths to Save Our Forests and Our Climate," which goes into a lot of these issues in detail, including a lot of you know my my you know kind of personal anecdotes about my work on the issue. Now,
0: let's let's just dive right in here, let's, uh, you know, we, the topic of wildfires and increasing frequency. First of all, are we seeing an increase in the frequency of wildfires in past decades? And if so, why?
1: Yeah, this, this is this is a really, really important question. And um, we are seeing an increase uh, and a really significant one over the last four decades. We've seen, a, you know, we have a lot more wildfire now than we had in the 1970s and the early 1980s. The interesting thing and the important thing to realize is in our forest ecosystems, we still have a lot less fire than we had prior to fire suppression a century ago. So the baseline shouldn't be the 1970s or, or the, the 1980s. It should be more like the 1870s or 1880s or 1770s. You know? So back into history... in in an average year, um, we had a lot more fire in our forests now than we have, than we, uh, we had a lot more fire in our forests historically than we have now. There are certain ecosystems where we have too much fire, like chaparral, you know, shrub habitats in Southern California, for example. And that's really just because, you know, these, these ecosystems are right next to huge population centers. And there's just at any point in time, people doing things that cause accidental ignitions. And so they're burning too frequently in those areas, but in forests, it's a very different story. And in the West and in the East, um, and in most ecosystems around the world that are forested, uh, we, have, we have actually a deficit of fire. And so that's key to understand. Like, you know, last year, uh, 4 million acres in California, about half of that was in forest. You know, historically, before fire suppression, that would have been an average year. So the real tragedy is when lives are lost, when homes are burned, and, and that's preventable.
0: Yeah. And so you mentioned earlier sort of the role of what I mean, I, I know quite a few of these fires out, out in the West are started initially intentionally or by accidents from camping and fires and so forth. But a significant number or a number, I won't say significant, I won't put a qualifier on it. Aren't they caused by weather, lightning uh, and dry thunderstorms activity as well?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, when you're in low elevation areas, you know, in valleys you know, where there's mostly grassland or woodland or, or in foothills where it's mostly grasses and shrubs, Uh, Most of the ignitions are uh, from human uh, causes, uh, usually accidental, but sometimes arson, unfortunately. And that's just because, you know, these are these are low elevation areas, you know, in in lower slopes and in valleys where it's easier to build communities. And so um, naturally, you know, the majority of ignitions are are from are from people. And uh, and by the way, you know, we can actually do something about that, too. Once we realize that we can focus some resources there and prevent a lot of those. Um, but in in uh, in the higher elevation uh, mountain forests, uh, the opposite is true. In the more remote forests, these are uh, mostly lightning ignitions, just like they've been for many many millions of years in our forests, and. Um, And of course, you know, if the weather is uh, is calm and cool, it's uh, kind of moist air conditions and it's not much wind and it's not very dry, it's not very hot, then that fire is not going to do much. You know, you might get a lightning strike and it might smolder and just sort of creep along maybe a quarter of an acre. Uh, for for days, even weeks, several weeks. Um, but then all of a sudden you've got hot, dry, windy conditions as you get more into summer, and then that fire will move along and become bigger and and more of a mixed intensity fire and give you that great heterogeneity that's so good for wildlife, you know, that I talk about in my book Smoke Screen. So um, you know, that's the way it's been working for for you know millions and millions of, of years in 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 the forests all around the world.
0: And so I think people have this impression Somewhat rightfully so, in some instances, that fire, wildfires, are villains. But they certainly serve a role in our natural ecosystem, and have, as, as you've noted, for for many years, to, for indeed, even before we were here as humans. Um, explain why it's perhaps a misnomer or perhaps a misperception to see. And again, I think you've alluded to it as fire as its villain, but they certainly can have negative impacts on society. So explain the sort of contradiction in that statement, if you will.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, we, we think about fire from a human perspective um, and, 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 um, and really, you know, there's different human perspectives on fire, you know? So, um, in our in modern society, in most communities, you know, we think of fire as you said as the villain, as something that's dangerous. It's out there somewhere, and we got to you know stop it out there, um, which which isn't working. Um, and uh, and we're realizing that the focus needs to be on protecting homes and communities. You know, but the reality is, is that, you know, indigenous people uh, in North America and all around the world uh, have been using fire as part of cultural practices, uh, as part of su- a subsistence role in society, for religious uh, practices for you know, thousands of years. And then, of course, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, you know, wildland fire has been in our forests uh, on planet Earth for about 350 million years. So, you know, this is deep evolutionary history. And uh, and so as a result, you know, we have you know countless plant and animal species that have evolved over millions of years to not only uh, be adapted to fire, but many of them depend on fire. And in fact, uh, you know, many depend on patches uh, of fire that burn hot and kill most or all the trees and forests. In fact, that's some of the very best wildlife habitat. It's, uh, it's comparable to old growth forest in terms of native biodiversity and wildlife abundance. We call that uh, snag forest habitat.
0: You mentioned a term earlier that I want to make sure our Weather Geeks and listeners, I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Chad Hansen about fire ecology, fires, wildfires and so forth. And we're going to ask all the questions that you may have in this podcast, including the big question about links to climate change and are there and so forth that's coming. But you mentioned fire suppression. Can you explain to the listeners what some of those techniques are?
1: Yeah, so uh, fire suppression, you know, has become a, a huge you know, business and industry, and and you know, agency practice at state and federal levels. It's, there's billions of dollars every year that are being spent on this, and uh, it, it it runs the gamut. There's a lot of different things that, that, uh, it, that are involved. You know, some of them are the things that we see on you know the TV news at night. You know, with the um, the planes flying over and dropping you know uh, tons and tons of of water or fire retardant um, on the flames say in other cases, you have crews on the ground uh, just with, with hand tools creating fire lines, you know little narrow fire lines. Um, in other cases, you have people operating bulldozers and bulldozing fire lines. Here's the problem, and I talk about this in detail in my book Smokescreen, is that fire suppression does not recognize that wildland fires, whether it's forests or other ecosystems, wildland fires are driven overwhelmingly by weather and climate and therefore also climate change. It's not about how you manage the vegetation and uh, and it's not about what you do after the fire starts. You know, unless again, if it's that, that lightning strike in very, very cool, moist conditions and it's barely smoldering, of course you can put that out. And that's, you know, when fire suppression puts out fires, 97 98 percent of, of the fires that are that, that start are put out in that condition in very low low fire weather it's the only time you can actually do it you can literally stomp it out with your boots it's it's barely moving and it's just tiny like one inch two inch flames but once the fire uh, is moving once you've got weather that's even marginally you know hot or warm and dry and windy Um, then that fire cannot be stopped by fire suppression. It doesn't matter how many people you have or how much equipment or how much money you spend. That fire is going to slow and stop when the weather changes, when the the temperature cools, when the relative humidity in the air goes up, when the wind dies down, maybe you get a little bit of rain, that fire is going to slow and it's going to stop. And then everyone says, Hey, we stopped the fire, but we didn't stop the fire. The weather stopped the fire.
0: And and it's interesting because uh, you know, Increasingly, as I mentioned earlier, I've understood the weather and climate role, but kind of staying before we really in the next segment get to sort of the climate change linkages. um, What effect does mass removal of trees have on the local climate itself?
1: Yeah, and this is another uh, this is another really important misconception that's 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 kind of continuing to direct management activities in the wrong places. You know, we need to move away from backcountry fire suppression and focus our resources and attention on protecting communities from fire, which we can do. Um, Home hardening and, you know, making homes more fire safe and helping people financially and and, uh, doing that defensible space pruning within a hundred feet of homes. That's the only thing that's effective according to the science of protecting towns. But the other thing that we can do is we can get away from these policies of backcountry logging Um, because uh, for decades, and this is still the current, you know, management focus. The idea has been, well, if you have forests that are more mature or they're denser um, that that uh, will remove a bunch of trees through logging operations and um, and that will um, create a more open forest condition. And uh, and it'll be they call it fuel reduction. So that's what they call these logging operations. The problem is it doesn't work that way. Again, it's it's not recognizing that fires are driven mostly by weather and climate. And therefore, again, climate change, not how dense the forest is or how many dead trees there are or down logs. And in fact, the interesting thing is and the sort of counterintuitive thing. And again, I talk about, again, this a lot in my, my book, Smokescreen, is that is that denser forests actually act as sort of a buffer um, and, and they kind of regulate the, the weather and, and climate conditions that can drive wildland fires. Um, so a denser forest has a, a more canopy cover, more cooling shade of that canopy cover. It has moister conditions because of that um, more cooling shade. And um, the forest floor actually doesn't get as much sunlight. So a lot of the more combustible vegetation, grasses, shrubs, smaller trees, seedling, saplings, they start to die back uh, because they don't have as much sunlight and um and the denser stands of forests actually act as a windbreak against the winds that drive the flames and so denser forests and forests with more dead trees and down logs they don't burn more intensely in fact most of the time they burn less intensely and those dead trees and down logs um there's not much to burn on them because there's not much they don't really have twigs and needles you know they're just these big logs And uh, really what they are, they're like giant, um, you know, more like giant sponges than fuel because they soak up and retain huge amounts of of moisture. And so a denser denser forest is basically like a moisture reservoir. But when logging occurs, including what they kind of euphemistically call finny, it reduces the canopy cover. It removes a lot of those moisture retaining trees um, and logs, and it creates hotter, drier, and windier conditions. It basically creates conditions that are more, more, um, uh, Influenced by extreme weather um, that drive fires.
0: Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad free? Good news. And we're back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Dr. Chad Hansen, who's helping us dispel wildfire misconceptions that, uh, that are out there in terms of how they're problematic, how they're managed, the role of weather, climate, and so forth. So taking a deep dive on this topic. And now I want to take the biggest, biggest deepest dive, if you will, uh, into the conversation about climate change. Now, I, obviously, climate change is real and there are uh, anthropogenic components. I actually served as a co-author on a National Academy study in 2016 looking at attribution of current uh, weather events to climate change and you know we sort of ranked our understanding based on the peer-reviewed literature of how different current events sort are related to climate change and at that time um, we, we certainly had a section on wildfires but I, I felt we were a little bit sort of I guess, towed the line a little bit in what we would say about wildfire connections to climate change, because, oh, there are the management issues and there's sort of these issues that aren't sort of related to weather and climate. And so how can you disentangle those? So I think we acknowledge there certainly was some role for climate change in current wildfire activity. But I, I felt we in that report may have towed the line a little bit more so uh, out of caution and, uh, and so forth. Uh, um, I'm getting the sense that you probably would have made a bit more bold statement in terms of the role of climate change in current wildfire activity. So just give us your sort of perspective on it.
1: Yeah, thanks, I mean, I appreciate that. And I think, you know, some caution is appropriate in science, you know, especially given the information that you have at, at, at that time. And, um, you know, the, but science evolves quickly and, uh, and and pretty rapidly in many cases. I think, you know, you, you know some years ago, I, I would have been a little bit more cautious about it too. Uh, you know the, the the science was very clear about climate change happening and being human caused um, and that was uh that was you know very very well established but the linkage between wildfire and climate change was was still you know a little bit more in its infancy in many cases uh, scientifically i think at this point it's it's been you know well established that there's a there's a clear linkage certainly and especially uh especially now that we have more and more research including my own research uh finding that weather and climate our variables are dominant or overwhelmingly dominant in terms of how fires burn and their and their behavior um, uh, that I think that we we understand now that you know is, as as climate changes you know that that always influences wildland fire influences frankly every everything that happens in, in, in the weather and so well you know I mentioned you know, earlier that logging is a is a is a uh, is an exacerbating factor it's definitely a secondary factor climate change is definitely dominant. Um, But logging can be a secondary factor that uh, actually exacerbates the situation and can make fires uh, burn more intensely.
0: Okay, but I want to get down into the the weeds here a little bit. We're going to geek out here from a climate perspective. So climate change affects and is the dominant player in wildfire activity. I mean, I think that's what you just said. People struggle with this because, you know, you see the West, for example, in drought at times. And then you see these. heavy or these sort of anomalous wet periods where you get regrowth. And so help us understand how perhaps the anomalies of really dry conditions and really wet conditions, both of which we know have linkages to climate change in terms of frequency and intensity, how both of those ends of the spectrum contribute to fire activity.
1: Yeah. uh, So, you know, climate is, uh, is dominant in, in, in both ways, right? So, so uh, climate uh, can be dominant in terms of, um, increasing potential for fire. It can also be dominant in terms of suppressing fire. So, you know, as you mentioned, you know, climate um, does does different things at different points in time. And right now we're seeing warming because of human activities and, and, and all the excess you know, carbon we're putting into the atmosphere um it's also increasing precipitation in some places in some places it's exacerbating drought cycles in other places it's increasing precipitation um in some places we're seeing drier conditions most of the year but we're seeing increased summer precipitation and so it gets complex because there are a number of these things that even if you get uh Warmer conditions, it may or may not mean more fire. So, for example, uh, in some places, if you've got hotter and drier conditions, you are going to tend to see more fire in other places. You may get conditions that are more like warmer and wetter and you may see less fire. And um, and also, you know, as you I think you alluded to this, that um, it's true that if you get a uh, particularly wet year, one year and then the following year is a significant drought year, You know, those can be conditions uh, for, you know, particularly uh, large fire years, you know, historically, uh, because you've got, you know, um, a lot of um, kind of rich understory growth from the previous uh, year where rain was and snow was abundant uh, and then followed by a drought year. Just curious. I mean, if you I mean,
0: I, I mean, you're the kind of person that I could see being called to testify before Congress on your expertise on these issues. And I mean, certainly um, if someone's listening to this, um, this podcast, uh, here's certainly someone I'm sure you're well known, but uh, certainly someone that I, I think should be brought forth. If you haven't already done that, what would you tell policymakers about what we need to do in light of what the statements you just made about weather and climate and fires? I mean, what are some of the policy things that you're thinking about?
1: Yeah, this this is this is so key right now, because some of these really big policy questions are being addressed right now in, in Congress. And so it's really important we get it right. You know, our, our moment to address the climate crisis and address it in a meaningful way that will actually make things better. That moment is now. You know, So it's not something we can put off. And so we, we really do need to get this right. Um, so I, I was um, uh, one of uh, over 200 scientists. Um, that sent a letter to Congress last year um, addressing this very question. And this letter was led by the nation's top climate scientists and ecologists, and uh, and we told Congress that, look, uh, the the reality of climate change and what, what the science is coalescing around is that in order to overcome the climate crisis, we have to do not one, but two things. And we have to do them both aggressively and simultaneously. Number one, we have to move away from fossil fuels as quickly as possible into clean energy. Um, So we don't just keep pumping more CO2 into the atmosphere. Number two, we have to substantially increase our protection of natural ecosystems, especially the more carbon rich ecosystems like forests, uh, wetlands as well, Um, because the residence time of CO2 in the atmosphere. Once we put that excess CO2 up there through fossil fuel burning and through logging, by the way, which is another large source of carbon emissions, um, once we put that excess CO2 up there, it stays up there for many decades, even centuries. And so we have to draw it down. Right now, um, our atmospheric CO2 concentrations are 417 parts per million of CO2 equivalents. Um, it might be even slightly higher than that, according to the most recent readings. We need it to be well below 350 parts per million in order to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. And we don't have to do this tomorrow. You know, I don't want people to feel like, you know, well, it's hopeless. It's not hopeless. We actually can turn the corner on this in a positive way. Our time is is, is now and it's the next 10, 15 years in particular. And um, and so right now, Congress is um, uh, is considering proposals that would massively increase subsidies for logging on public lands and also private forest lands. Um, based on this, this outdated and discredited idea that removing trees from forests uh somehow curbs fires or decreases fires and um and the problem is is that if they do that um and you know there's this is, these are proposals coming from um, the leadership in the u.s senate um uh and and also in in the house. Um, Senator Manchin, uh, his infrastructure bill has uh, billions and billions of dollars for these subsidies, um, that uh, and, and rollbacks of environmental laws to facilitate more logging, um, based on this notion. That's wrongheaded, um, and and the Democrats, uh, you know, really need to, since they're in leadership position right now, really need to to you know walk their talk and say you know they they say they're they're all about the science and and they believe in the science of climate change. Well, the science of climate change involves two things. It's not just fossil fuels. It's also the impact of logging on climate change. And and so we need to move away from those proposals and we need to shift and and go in the other direction uh, and start spending resources on protecting more forests, shifting away from logging, putting resources and subsidies into non-wood alternatives to start reducing our wood consumption into recycling and resources into jobs programs to uh, to protect communities from wildland fire, which are increasingly weather and climate driven. Uh, and so I think that um, you know, we need to recognize that logging, uh, you know, most of the carbon in trees that are removed from forests goes into the atmosphere almost immediately. So logging is a huge source of carbon emissions and it does soil damage and removes nutrients. And so it compromises and undermines the ability of a forest to draw down that excess CO2, which we can't afford to do.
0: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Chad Henson. You've mentioned your book a couple of times. Tell us a little bit about the book and where they can find it.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, again, the book is called Smokescreen, Debunking Wildfire Myths to Save Our Forests and Our Climate. Um, It came out on May 25th of this year. Um, And uh, you can uh, find that on Amazon. You can find that on bookshop.com. And you can also uh, uh, buy it directly from the publisher, which is University Press Kentucky.
0: Now, we, we talked about the villainous side of fires and how it does cause loss of life and property damage and so forth. Are there practical things that the individual, perhaps someone living in the uh, urban-wildland interface or the wildland-urban interface, the WUI as I've heard it described, um, are there things that people in those environments or perhaps even beyond can do that are practical that can help to, I mean, I'm not talking some big policy solutions, just sort of the uh, the sort of individual or local or regional level that can be done? Yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. And this this is a really, really important uh, thing that we need to be talking about and, and really, frankly, focusing on. And by the way, it's not just a Western issue. You know, we we saw that in 2016, in, in the fire that. Uh that devastated parts of, of Gatlinburg. You know, oh Tennessee. yeah, we've
0: we've actually studied that in my my group at UGA for that reason, looking at rain-free days as opposed to drought and so
1: forth. So I g- agree completely. A- absolutely, and then there were other fires. You know, there were some large uh, lightning uh, ignited fires uh, in the Southern Appalachians at, in that year too, and in other years. You know, so it's important to keep in mind that you know both from an ecological standpoint, you know, forests of the East have a natural fire regime too. It's a little different from the one uh, regime in the West, but you know, it's there's a natural fire regime. And communities are vulnerable uh, you know, all across the country. Um, and so you know, we we need to focus on this because in some cases we're seeing large scale loss of, of homes and, and lives in and wildland fires. And it's it, it is almost entirely preventable. And so I'll mention a few a few key things. So in terms of protecting homes, it's really simple stuff. It's not that complicated. Um, and it makes sense once people hear it. Things like you know, sweeping every year during fire season, sweeping those dry leaves and pine needles off the roof. You know, making sure that those are not accumulating because what a lot of people don't go, well, and I'll mention another one too: uh, ember-proof vents. Um, you know, replace those old uh, exterior vents. You know, that vents that go into attics and uh, attics and other you know spaces. Make sure you get modern ember-proof vents on there with a fine mesh, uh, fine wire mesh, because most homes that burn in wildland fires do not burn due, due to direct contact with flames. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but this has been studied again and again. And most homes, in many cases, the vast majority that burn, burn from uh, embers that are driven by the winds, sometimes a mile, two miles, three miles in advance of the flames. So most of the homes are already on fire by the time the fire even gets to the town. But that's preventable. If we have ember-proof vents on homes, if uh, the... the um, dry leaves and pine needles are swept off the roof. Uh, Rain gutter guards, another key one. You know, most of these things are a few hundred dollars, um, uh, one time investment, you know, that you could really do a lot to protect a home. And then um, and then, of course, defensible space. And really what that means is it's pruning a vegetation within 100 feet of the home. It's not cutting down mature trees. It's really limbing up the lower limbs, you know, removing lower limbs, removing dry grasses and reducing kind of the, the, the shrub cover really close to the house. Um, and uh, removing you know, some of the, the, the small twigs and dry leaves and pine needles on the forest floor. That's the key aspect of things. If those things are done, the vast majority of homes will survive a wildland fire. We've got numerous case studies on this. Um, there are There's a lot of good research on this. In many cases, we're seeing 95%, 99%, in some cases, 100% of homes surviving even a really uh, you know, fast, intense, you know, weather-driven fire. So it does work. But right now we're not focusing there. Um, we're focusing on the wrong things. Um, so there was a bill in Congress last year, actually, uh, by um, then Senator Harris, now Vice President Harris, um, called the Wildfire Defense Act, which would have done exactly that It would have uh, devoted resources to focusing on home protection uh, because the fact is, is that, you know, some people have the, the financial means to do this themselves. Um, but, but a lot of people don't, they don't have the means. They need the assistance, They need technical assistance. And then in many cases, they, they need financial assistance. And I think that we should help.
0: Where can people find you on social media or on the internet?
1: Uh thanks yeah so we're on uh, on Twitter uh, at John Muir Project um and uh and you can uh, find the information uh, on uh, these issues on um, on our website uh, www.johnmuirproject.org and um and of course uh you know there's a lot more information in in the in the smoke book as well and uh, and also contact information on our website if people you know really are interested in the technical aspects of things and they want to reach out and ask for some studies I'm always happy to provide them
0: that's where we have to end this really interesting conversation, as I thought it would be. It's now time for our Geek of the Week. we like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Jose Cleros. Jose has a doctorate in atmospheric physics and became inspired, excuse me, <clears throat> to study the atmosphere in the tropics after Hurricane Mitch crossed his homeland of Honduras, twice when he was a child. The devastation left in its path is what's propelling Jose to study the atmosphere and ask questions. He even had a chance to fly with the hurricane hunters as a part of his research. If you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Thank you so much, uh, Chad, for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for the invite.
0: And for those of you that listen, if you're a new listener, if you're a dedicated listener, thank you for listening. And we'll talk to you next time on
1: Weather Geeks.